Acts chapter 24 as we continue our study through the book of Acts. And this morning, as we've been following Paul's ministry and his times in Jerusalem and the attacks he's been receiving from unbelieving, the unbelievers, uh, the, un- the unbelieving Jews, Paul's now is on trial for those things. And he's being charged, but they're not credible charges. This chapter begins and ends with Paul in prison in Caesarea. He was escorted to Caesarea during the night from Jerusalem to escape the Jews who planned to kill him. And the cause of all this confusion is Paul didn't get his fellow Jews to understand the gospel ministry that he was involved in. So he probably got bummed out, got depressed, discouraged, and there's no doubt because the Lord came to him at night to encourage him. And Paul said that, you know, the Lord stood by him and said, fear not. So if Jesus said, fear not, then obviously he was fearing. He was discouraged. He was going through some difficulty. Jesus told his faithful servant that he would witness to him in Rome also. Now the Lord didn't promise him that it would be easy and he doesn't promise us that whatever we're involved in in our service to him or our life with him is going to be easy. Uh, So many difficult experiences and dangers were waiting for Paul right away. In fact, from, there, from here to the day that he was martyred, there was nothing but risk and danger in his life. Now, that was, that was the normal thing for Paul. The normal pattern for Paul since the day he was let down in a basket over the wall at Damascus. And in this chapter, we're going to learn that the high priest Ananias and the elders came down from Jerusalem to accuse Paul before Felix, Governor Felix. And Paul is accused of three things. He's accused of treason rebellion, and profaning the temple. Paul now starts a number of trials, a series of trials, uh, hearings in Caesarea in front of Roman officials. And these experiences will cover a period of over two years. So the first Roman government official that Paul stands before is Felix, again, the governor of Judea. And that's the focus of this chapter The chief captain of the Roman uh, soldiers was Claudius Lysias. He sent Paul to stand trial before Felix. Lysias didn't want to or wouldn't want to deal with the Jews about Paul anymore because of the possibilities of more and bigger uprisings by the Jews. So what does he do? He passes the problem off by sending Paul to Felix where he would be prosecuted by the Jews. And this chapter gives us one of the saddest examples of missed opportunity in all of Scripture. And that's really what this is going to be all about. You know, a lot of it has to do with the trial and the people that Paul had to deal with, with these accusations and in his defense. But it's really about the missed opportunity in all of Scripture. In other words, those people who missed an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, he had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Paul. 
And it's like a lot of people today, you know, they, they may go to church, they may be around Christians, they may hear the gospel, they may hear a lot about Jesus, and, and they spend a lot of time with those people or, or hear about the gospel. But unfortunately, like Felix, he let the, cha- the chance to receive Christ slip away. And there's no sign that he ever was saved. And the Bible gives us many examples of people who missed their chance to be saved. Don't miss your chance to be saved. There were some pagan philosophers after listening to Paul's intellectual defense of Christianity on Mars Hill in Athens. They just sort of wrote Paul off. They were listening and they found Paul's, what he was having to say. They found his uh, conversation interesting. And then they just said, you know what, Paul? We shall hear you again concerning this. In other words, Paul, you know what? You know, this is great, but you know, uh, maybe we can do this another time. And how many times maybe have you shared the gospel? Somebody said, well, you know what? Um, you know, I, I got to go. And, and you know, maybe, maybe we can talk about this at another time. And there's never another time. Paul left Athens soon after that conversation with those philosophers and he never did return. And those philosophers never heard from Paul again. Let me read to you if you want to turn to Luke chapter 9. Let me read to you verses 57 through 62 as we see an example of also lost opportunity. Luke chapter 9 beginning with verse 57. And it says... Now it came to pass, oh, I still haven't got my place here, Luke 9, I'll get it here, here we go. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Jesus, I will follow you. But he said, let me first. And notice, let me first is found twice. And when it's always we that get in the way of following Jesus. Lord, let me first do this. Let me first do that. Let me do, get this all out of my life, out of my system. Let me sow my wild oats, and then I'll follow you. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having, been put, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke here, in these verses, records the lost opportunities of these three men who could have, think of it, they could have become disciples but they wouldn't meet the conditions that Jesus laid down. The first man was a scribe, according to Matthew 8, who volunteered to go and follow Jesus until he heard the cost. He had to deny himself. He was probably used to a comfortable home. The second man was called by Jesus. What an honor. What an honor to be called by Jesus. But he was rejected because he wouldn't take up the cross and he wouldn't die to himself. This man was worried about somebody else's funeral when he should have been planning his own. Now, Jesus is not, is not suggesting that we dishonor our parents when he said, no, let me go and first bury the dead. Again, Jesus wasn't suggesting that we dishonor our parents. 
but only that we don't allow our love for family to weaken our love for him. We should love Jesus so much that our love for family wouldn't, would look like hatred in comparison. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, love for, for anyone else and, and our love compared to Jesus, for Jesus, that love for anybody else should, be, should, should look like hatred in, in comparison to the, or should, we should love less than what we do Jesus. We love him more. The third man also volunteered to follow Jesus, but he wouldn't follow Jesus either because he was looking back instead of ahead. There's nothing wrong with saying goodbye, but if it gets in the way of, if it gets in the way of obedience, it becomes sin. You see, Jesus saw this man's heart was not totally with him, but that he would be plowing and looking back. Then we have the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew chapter 25. That also shows the uh, the misfortune of missed opportunity. So does the story about the rebellious Israelites who died in the wilderness and they failed to enter the promised land. But the most famous of all example of lost opportunity is Judas Iscariot. Judas was graciously given a chance that only 11 other disciples were given. That is to live and to minister with the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Judas Iscariot could have sat on one of the 12 thrones in the kingdom. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Judas's name could have been on one of the 12 foundation stones of the heavenly city in Jerusalem, of Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. Judas could have been one of the most honored saints in the history of redemption. But instead, he became a thief, a hypocrite, and a traitor. Judas gave up his chance to follow Jesus for a worthless 30 pieces of silver. He committed suicide and he went to hell. Jesus summed up Judas' life with these words. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Matthew 26, 24. It seems like what Jesus taught his disciples and the multitudes didn't do them much good. Because they lacked power, they lacked love, and they lacked discipline. And they grieved the Lord's heart. No wonder the laborers are few. Many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. Why? Because they don't follow Christ. If we don't have these spiritual essentials of power, love, and discipline, we can can never truly be his disciples. But here's the thing. They are available to us from the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So are we a joy to Jesus Christ or are we breaking his heart? It's sad, but Felix was a lot like Judas. Judas lived with the Lord for more than three years. Imagine that. Walked with him, you know, lived with him, saw him, witnessed what he did for three years. Had the best teacher. Felix had Paul in his palace for two years. Judas has Judas had several chances to talk with Jesus. 
In verse 26 in our chapter, it says, Felix used to send for Paul often and conversed with him. Can you imagine? Judas betrayed the Son of God for money. Felix was hoping in verse 26 that Paul would give him money. Judas betrayed the Lord to the Jewish authorities. Felix, who was afraid of those same authorities, betrayed Paul by refusing to let him go, even though Paul was innocent. So let's begin now with chapter 24, verse 1. And it says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. In other words, these were giving the accusations to the governor about Paul. These accusers didn't waste any time. They came from Jerusalem to Caesarea five days later in order to press charges against Paul. And they brought a man with them named Tertullus who would act as the prosecuting attorney. Paul's accusers didn't have facts. They didn't have any legitimate charges against Paul. So what did they do? What a lot of people do? They resorted to clever words. They were good talkers. The word translated orator here is a root, uh, is, is a root of the English word rhetoric. They just spoke and poured out a lot of rhetoric. Because they didn't have any facts for their charges. So they resorted to, to, to clever words, to clever speech instead. Verses 2 through 4. And when Paul was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, See that through you, I'm sorry, as he spoke to Felix, and when he was called upon, Felix that is, Tertullus began his accusation saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg, to, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So this lawyer spent almost as much time on his introduction and sweet-talking uh, Felix here than he did bringing charges against Paul. His description of Felix, oh, it was just, it was syrupy, it was flattery, it was, he was just brown-nosing the governor here. Because Felix was known for using brutal violence and corrupt self-promotion. Felix had been a slave and he had won his freedom and he gained favor with the royal court. Verses 5 through 8. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to, uh, to, come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. So the, the, there were the, these were the three charges that were made against Paul. There were three charges made against Paul. He was a worldwide troublemaker. He was, he was starting riots everywhere. Secondly, he, they, they said he was a leader of this, this Nazarene sect. And third, he was, found, try, he was being tried, or he tried to defile the temple. The first charge was totally political. Rome wanted to keep order throughout its empire. The second charge also had to do with the government because Tertullus made it seem like Christianity was separated from the Jewish religion. Rome allowed Judaism 
as a legal religion, but it wouldn't allow any new religions. And by describing Christianity as a sect of the Nazarene, Tertullus made Paul's faith look cultic, like some new movement that had come to town, something unusual. Defiling the temple was also a political move because the Romans gave the Jews permission to execute any Gentile, anybody that wasn't a Jew, who went inside the barrier of the temple. Now at this point, Tertullus altered the original charge that was made in chapter 21 where they accused Paul of bringing a Gentile, uh, Trophimus the Ephesian, into the temple courts and here Paul's being accused of trying to defile it. So the truth was really twisted when, uh, when, when Tertullus says, and we seized him, implying that they took Paul to arrest him. Verses 9 through 10. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had no, uh, nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have, been, uh, you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So Paul here, uh, the, the Jews now agreed with the accusations that were brought there in 9 and 10. So after the Jews had agreed with their prosecuting attorney, Tertullus, with the charges, Paul was now allowed to answer. And his introduction was a lot shorter and truthful than, than, than Tertullus's was. Paul implied Felix knew the, the situation in Judea well enough to make an accurate decision. Verse 11. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So Paul gave several, several points to the, the, the attorney here, if you will, in his defense. First, he says, you know, I wasn't in Jerusalem long enough to start a riot. I was only there 12 days. In fact, one of the reasons I was in Jerusalem was to worship and to observe the Feast of Pentecost. And he gives another reason down in verses 17 through 18. Now, this, it looks like verses 12 through 13 now. And they neither found me, notice, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Secondly, even Paul's accusers couldn't name one time where Paul started a riot in the city. He wasn't involved in any public debates. He wasn't guilty of causing a riot. He says, man, I, 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 I have... He hadn't gone to Jerusalem for an evangelistic mission. He went there to bring an offering for the poor. So the evidence shows the charge of treason was totally false. And then Paul pointed out to Felix, insisting that the Sanhedrin could not prove the charges that he was being accused of. And since the two last, remaining, the two last charges were religious ones, they were outside the expertise of a Roman court to judge. So, you see, Felix should have dismissed the case right there on the spot because they didn't have any evidence. So, in reply to the second charge of sectarianism, Paul admitted, hey, I am a Christian. But he denied that Christianity was heretical. He said to Felix, notice in verses 14 through 16, But this I confess to you, Felix, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. 
I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul says to Felix, look, I worship the God of Israel, and I'm in full agreement with the law and the prophets. Not only that, he said, he said my faith was, wasn't in a sect. It wasn't in some weird following or some offshoot of some cult or anything weird. He said, I, I, I believe the, the, the God of Israel. I worship the God of Israel. I'm in agreement with the law and the prophets. And he says, I, I wasn't in some weird sect, which was, you know, which was known as the way. That's what they called Christianity in that day. He said, I, I, I wasn't, you know, uh, some weird thing that I was doing. And he said, my hope is in the resurrection. He said, it, it's the same hope that my accusers are trying me for. They believe in the resurrection as well. So by this, Paul meant that Christianity was the outcome of the Old Testament. You see, Paul always made sure he had a good conscience as a Pharisee and a Christian and to seek to please the Lord. Verses 17 through 19. Goes on to say, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you, before you to object if they had anything against me. So after he responds to the false charges of Tertullus, Paul goes on to answer the false charges of the Jews that he had defiled the temple. He says, I didn't come to Jerusalem to defile the temple. I came to bring help for the Jewish people to present my own, and to present my own offerings to the Lord. But when the Jews saw me in the temple, and I was with four men who were fulfilling their Nazareth vows, he says, how could, I, how could I possibly be worshiping God and defiling God's house at the same time? He says, I was in God's house, but I was there with the four men, you know, honoring their Nazarite vow, Nazarite vow, Nazarite, Nazarite vow. He says, a Jewish priest was in charge of me. He was in charge of the temple activities that we were doing. So if the temple was defiled, he said, the priest was responsible. You see, Paul was only trying to obey the law. Now, Paul got to the heart of his defense. Because it was required by Roman law that accusers face the accused at the trial or let the, the accused go or let the, trials, uh, the charges drop. So see, his accusers who were making all these accusations, they weren't there. So by Roman law, they should have dropped the charges because the accusers weren't there to face the, 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 one, the defendant. Ananias wisely hadn't brought any of the Hellenistic Jews with him. Because he was sure their witness wouldn't hold up when they were examined. So these men were good at inciting riots, starting trouble, but they weren't good at giving facts. Verses 20 through 21. Or else, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, then I am being judged by you this day. So Paul closed his defense by replying to the members of the Jewish council here. He said, instead of giving him a fair hearing, the high priest and the Sanhedrin had abused him. They refused to listen to him. 
Ananias was no doubt happy that Paul didn't say anything about the time that he had somebody slap him in the face because that was illegal, you know, for a Roman citizen to be treated that way. And it sounds like Paul is being a bit sarcastic here in his closing statement. What Paul said here at the end was that it could be said like this. If I've done anything evil, it's probably that I'm reminded that I reminded the Jewish council of our great Jewish doctrine of the resurrection. He says, if I'm being charged about anything, it's because maybe I brought up the resurrection in which they believed in as well. Now remember, the book of Acts is a record of the early church's witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Sadducees had abandoned the doctrine of resurrection a long time ago. The Pharisees didn't give it the real importance that it deserved. And obviously, Paul would have related this doctrine to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin didn't want that. They had accused Paul of being anti-Jewish and anti-Roman. But you see, they couldn't prove these charges. And if the Jewish leaders pursued any of these charges further, their case would have fallen apart because they didn't have legal charges. But here's the deal. They had enough circumstantial evidence to put doubts in the Roman officials' minds, and maybe there was even enough racial prejudice in them to help keep up and feed their hatred. Verse 22 through 27. But when Felix heard these things, now Felix is looking at all that he's just heard, the charges, Paul's defense. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, Notice, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and, hold, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and he answered. Notice, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Notice, verse 26 now. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix and Felix, wanting to, do, to the, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. But go back up to verse 25 and notice. It says, now Paul reasoned with him. Notice, Paul began to talk to Felix about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. And it says, Felix was afraid. And what does he tell Paul? Go away. You see, Felix was being witnessed to and he was being convicted. And it says he was terrified. He said, and he told Paul, go away. I don't want to hear any more about this. You see, if a man ever failed personally and officially, it was Felix. He failed personally as a human being and he failed as an official of Judea. He didn't want the facts. He surely couldn't say he didn't know the facts. But he didn't want the fact. Because again, verse 22 says he had accurate knowledge of the way. He had the facts. His wife Drusilla was a Jew. And she might have kept him informed about what was going on among her people and as a Roman official. Right? As a Roman official, he had carefully, that is Felix, he had carefully 
maybe even privately check these things out. He knew what was going on. He saw the light, but he chose to live in the darkness. Felix saw to it that Paul was comfortable and taken care of while, he, while at the same time he was safely guarded. Notice it said in verse 23, Felix said to give Paul liberty. Now, the word liberty means he wasn't put in a common jail or kept in close confinement. He had limited freedom in the palace, chained to a soldier. Now think of it. Chained to a soldier. The guards were changed every, uh, changed every six hours. There'd be a new set of guards every six hours. Can you imagine that guard chained to Paul for six hours? What he heard all about Jesus. And he couldn't get away. Six hours later, here comes another guard. And the guy's probably telling the new guard, oh man, you're in for it. Oh, oh I don't know what this is going to be. And Paul starts to witness to him. And so, you know, it's amazing. Again, we see all the things that God did and how God worked in Paul's life. You know, in being taken away with a guard, you know, good enough for a king and, and, and just being taken care of and protected and, and, and rescued. And, and here he is and he's got liberty in the jail. People can come and go and visit him. And, you know, so, you know, again, he, he, he was allowed to have aides, friends, they would come and bring the things that he needed, and they could go and, as they, go and come as they wanted. They could take care of Paul. And what Paul's ministry was in those two years that he was there, the Bible doesn't say. But we can sure know one thing for sure, and that is that he was a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus. The record of one such witness is given by Luke, and it makes Felix, Felix's guilt even greater. Not only was Felix's mind filled, but his heart was moved by fear. And yet he, he still wouldn't obey the truth. And here's the thing. It's not enough for a person to know the facts about Jesus. It's not enough to be moved emotionally by the message of Jesus. That's all fine and well, but you must willingly repent of sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It might have been his wife's curiosity, Drusilla, that caused Felix to give Paul another hearing. She wanted to hear Paul because, you see, her family had, in, had been involved in the way or with the way on many occasions. It was Drusilla's great-grandfather who tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem, according to Matthew 2. It was Drusilla's great-uncle who killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus in Luke chapter 23. And in Acts chapter 12, Luke tells about him uh, later on killing the apostle James. So Luke records three convincing reasons that Paul gave to Felix and his wife why they should repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Again, and back in verse 25, it says he reasoned about, notice, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment that's to come. So again, Paul gave Felix and Drusilla, his wife, why they should repent. Believe on Jesus Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. First, they had to do something about their sin. They needed to be righteous. The word sin is disappearing today. The word sin is, is little by little being removed from our vocabulary. 
because it's too convicting. It's too, it makes people uncomfortable. We now talk about our mistakes, our weaknesses, our inherited tendencies, our faults. Our, you know, many, many of sins are now called diseases and addictions. No longer are they called sin. But we don't face up to the fact that it is sin. Okay, we hear drunkenness now. Drunkenness. It's no longer the sin of drunkenness, which the Bible talks about. It's a disease now. It's no longer lust. It's sex addiction. Because it makes, it more, it makes the sin more palatable, more acceptable. People are no longer sinful. They're deprived. Or they're frightened. Or they're sick. But a holy God demands righteousness, and that's the bad news. But the good news is that this same holy God provides His own righteousness to those who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. We can never be saved by our own righteousness. Not that we have any. But we, you know, sometimes we think we can do, do things and, 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 and become righteous. But we can never be saved by our own righteousness of good works. We can be saved only through Christ's righteousness made available by His finished work of salvation on the cross. The second point in Paul's sermon dealt with self-control. We have to do something about today's temptations and not make excuses that we can't get victory over temptation. Man can control almost everything but himself. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. James said this, Therefore submit to God. The word submit means to be under obedience. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, many times when, when you hear these verses... They, and they go together. You only usually hear verse, uh, verse 8. It says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, wait a minute. It says, submit to God, resist the devil. If I'm not submitting to God, there's no way I'm going to resist the devil. And many times people say, oh, well, you know, the, the, the temptation, you know, it was, it was irresistible. No, it wasn't irresistible. It's that you didn't resist. You gave in to it. We need to submit to God, that is, be obedient to God, be in an intimate relationship with Him, and, and living, breathing with, the, with that relationship. And, and, you know, when I am, then I can resist the devil. We saw Jesus do it four times in Matthew chapter 4. When he's being tempted in the wilderness. Four times. What did he do? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture. And what does the Bible say? The devil left. The devil left. See, many times we we, we entertain the temptation. We think about the temptation. Oh, you know, would I get caught? Or, you know, well, it's really not that bad. It's not a big deal. And, And so we talk ourselves into following through with the temptation rather than submitting to God. Submit to God, resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. And then you draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And it says, cleanse your hands. See, that's something you do. Nobody's going to wash our hands for us. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means you're divided. You have a divided spirit, a divided mind, a divided heart between you and the Lord. Those things have to be fixed up. Then I will have victory over temptation. Here, Felix and Drusilla are perfect examples of lack of self-control. She divorced her husband to become Felix's third wife. Though a Jew, she lived as if God never gave the Ten Commandments. Felix was a corrupt official who didn't hesitate to lie. He even murdered in order to get rid of his enemies and promote himself. Self-control was something that neither one of them knew much about. Paul's third point was the last nail in the coffin, the judgment to come. He warned Priscilla and Felix of the judgment to come. And judgment is coming. I believe it's here. And we better be ready. Maybe Paul told Felix and Drusilla, Drusilla what he told the Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. That God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man being Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him, that is Christ, from the dead. See, Jesus Christ is either your Savior or your judge. He is either your Savior or your judge, or one day he's going to be your judge if he's not your Savior. Now, how do we know that Jesus Christ is judge? Because of what Acts 17.31 says. He, God, has given assurance of this to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Once again, speaking of the resurrection. Going back to verse 25, it said Felix trembled. He trembled at what Paul was telling him about these things. The word tremble means he became terrified. Felix became terrified when he heard the gospel. Roman leaders took pride. And here's, Roman leaders were tough. They were tough cookies. Roman leaders took pride in not showing their emotions under all circumstances. But a conviction from God, and it gripped Felix's heart. And, and Felix couldn't hide what the Spirit of God was doing to his heart, what he was doing to his soul. Paul could see it. Paul could see what was happening. But Paul offered him the remedy. And it was up to Felix to receive it. It's like going to the doctor and and you're sick and the doctor sees that you're sick and he offers you the remedy. But guess what? He can't force you to take the remedy. And if you choose not to receive the remedy, you, you, you remain in your sickness or you die in your sickness. And sin is 100% fatal. So if you receive the remedy, the blood transfusion of Jesus Christ into your life, you'll die in your sin. If you, if you refuse to receive it. What did Felix do? He told Paul, hey, go away. He says, when I have a convenient time, I will call you. Felix procrastinated himself right into hell. He told Paul, go away. You know, we'll, you know, at, a, at a more convenient time, you know, I'll call for you and we can talk about this again. Hey, there is no more convenient time to be saved than right now. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Felix had a foolish attitude towards God's word. 
He had this attitude like many people do. I, I, you know, I, I, I can do it later. You know, I, I can do it tomorrow. I can do it whenever. I can take it or leave it. But Acts 17, 30 says, But God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And when God speaks, we better listen and we better obey. Felix had a foolish attitude about his sins. He knew he was a sinner, and yet he refused to forsake his sins and obey the Lord. Felix also had a foolish attitude towards God's grace. Because the Lord had been very patient with Felix. <clears throat> yet he wouldn't surrender. You see, Felix was, wasn't sure of another day's life. And yet he foolishly said later, we're not, none of us are sure about tomorrow. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 7, uh, 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James said that we're but a vapor of smoke. We're here for a moment and we're gone. So instead of Felix listening to Paul, Felix tried to use Paul to get money from the church or gain favor with the Jews. Felix had more discussions with Paul. Paul uh, Felix talked to, 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 to Paul more times. But there's no sign that he was ever interested in spiritual things. Paul's friends, they were coming and going. Some of them maybe had access to the large offering that was sent by the Gentile uh, churches. But certainly Paul gave further witnesses to the governor, but again, to no avail. When Felix was replaced, he left Paul a prisoner, but it was Felix who was really the prisoner in bondage to his sin. Verse 22 says that Felix's mind was enlightened. Verse 25 says that Felix's emotions were stirred, but his will wouldn't surrender. He tried to gain the world, but as far as we know, he lost his soul. Like I said, he said tomorrow all the way into hell. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And then that next day, that, that last tomorrow, person wakes up in hell because they procrastinated themselves into hell <clears throat> dr clarence mccartney told a story about a meeting in hell satan called his four leading demons together and he commanded them hey think up a new lie that would trap more souls and one demon said hey i have it i'll go to earth and tell people there's no god satan said "Nah, that'll never work People can look around and see that there's a God. The second demon said, wait, I, I know. I'll go. I'll go to earth and I'll tell them there's no heaven. Satan, again, suggested a second time, but then Satan said, no. He says, everybody knows there's life after death and they want to go to heaven. The third demon spoke up and said, hey, let's tell them there's no hell. Satan said, no, because conscience tells them that their sins will be judged. We need a better lie than that. And then quietly the fourth demon spoke up and he says, I think I've solved your, your, your problem, Master. He said, I'll go to earth and I'll tell everybody there's no hurry. There's no hurry. And boy, have people eaten that one up. The best time to trust Jesus Christ is now. And the best time to tell others about Jesus Christ is now. 
Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, Lord, the truth of your word, the glory of your word, God. And Father, help us, God, to not put off of all things salvation for another time. We are not guaranteed one second, one breath, one heartbeat in our life. Your word says that God holds our life in his very hand. Our heart in his very hand. And the Bible says that man is appointed to die. Death is an appointment. We don't know when that, that appointment date will come up. For some of us, it could be before the day ends. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week, next year. We don't know. But we can be ready. Because the scripture says, one man is appointed and wants to die, but after that is the judgment. Where will we spend eternity? Tomorrow is a popular word to the devil. But it's a death sentence to the living soul without Christ. And if you're here this morning or you're watching, and hopefully you are feeling like Felix right now, trembling in your spirit without Christ, without any good news, but the gospel gives you the good news. There is a remedy for that. And that's receiving Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is talking to you and and, and tugging at your heart and saying you need to receive Christ because you don't know what tomorrow holds for you, then we pray that you would receive Jesus now. Not at a more convenient time, not tomorrow, not next week. Now, whatever you're doing, just stop what it is and pray this prayer with me. With all of your heart, you're speaking to Christ. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you I am a sinner. Cleanse me and wash me. Make me brand new. Make me a new creature. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to give me victory over all temptations and walk with me and help me to walk with you, Lord, all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.